Hello, 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 good day, and welcome to another episode of After School History. I am, as always, your genial host, Anthony J. Ashitino. And today I actually wanted to talk about something I had read, um, I had read up on it in the past week. And um, there, there's been a lot of talk about what's going on in the United States. And I don't just mean what's going on um, as far as the, the absolute political. I mean, what's going on? Like, where are we going? What's happening here? You know, um, is the United States headed towards, um, you know, fascism and headed towards any kind of a dictator- dictatorial um, you know, uh, rule, or is there still hope that democracy might hang on? And I wanted to take the opportunity to talk about that today, um, pretty briefly, and to bring up the subject, which I'm inordinately fond of, and of course, which makes, I feel, the most sense, because it's the very thing that we in the United States fashion ourselves after, which is uh, ancient Rome. And we're talking about here the Roman Republic and the transition from the Republic to the Empire. Okay, Um, so let's let's dive into this here. So the Roman Republic was a state that existed for hundreds of years, for for roughly 500 years, uh, you know, in, in Italy and the surrounding territories. And the idea behind the Republic was that all different members of the society had a say in things, okay? So you had a senate, uh, which was made up from the oligarchic class. Uh, you had tribunes, who could definitely be from the, what we, the lower class. We don't call it that today, but, you know, the, we, we call it maybe the working class, though I don't know that they really had a working class in Rome. And then you had... Um, the military, um, you had the consuls, too, who were in charge of, you know, running the state and who led the, the Roman armies out to battle. And for hundreds of years, there was kind of, um, there was kind of like a happy, um, relationship between them. The consuls and the senate ran the state, the tribunes participated. I mean, they definitely had rights. You know, they could stop things. They could make things change. But at the end of the day, it was really the consuls and the Senate that ran things. But as long as the empire was expanding, the Roman Empire was winning, um, you know, the average Roman was okay with stuff uh, for a while. For a while. And then what we saw was after uh, uh, a decent amount of time, Rome started coming into conflict with neighbors who weren't just random hilltop tribes, okay? And that was a problem. It was a problem for a variety of reasons. Number one, it required a tremendous amount more of Roman military support. You could fight against a, a hilltop tribe with maybe a couple of thousand soldiers, okay? But if you were dealing with, you know, you were dealing with the Gauls, you were dealing with the Carthaginians, you needed tens of thousands of soldiers. 
and you needed uh, a support system for them, and you needed a uh, navy in the case of the Carthaginians, you know, even the Gauls, you know, you needed a little bit of a navy to help out with some of the, the lower tribes. But so with Rome, you know, there came a point uh, where the Roman state had to start changing the way business was done. And the other problem with the Roman state with that was that before then, you know, you would go to battle. It'd be the equivalency of now I live in Monroe Township, New Jersey, which those of you who, uh, you know, uh, care about it, you can look up. Now, let's say I had to go and, uh, and fight in East Brunswick or fight in even New York City, okay? It's fairly close. I could go in there, you know, and I could be back within a few days or a few weeks. The problem became once you ended up having to have the citizen soldiers being sent out for months and possibly even years. That was an issue, okay? Because by the time they got back, after, let's say, two years fighting the Carthaginians, who knew what was going on? Most Roman citizens at the time... There was a tremendous agrarian population, so you had your farm, uh, and your farm was relying upon you. You were the one that, you know, dealt with the farm. So if you did not take care of the farm, the farm might be in ruins. And then you were in a lot of trouble, and you ended up moving into the cities, you ended up moving to Rome, uh, you know, being a, a pauper, and, you know, asking the state for help. And the problem was that the Roman state viewed military service as a kind of patriotic duty. They viewed it as something where it was like, you need to do this, okay? We don't have to pay you for it. We don't have to take care of you. You just have to do it because that's what we do. We're Romans. Everyone's part of the military. And that that was true. I mean, the, the aristocracy was part of the military, uh, you know, the consuls led the armies out. And if you were a high-ranking young, you know, uh, nobleman, you did become part of the military. You know, you were you were a military tribune. You were out there. Uh, you know, you were... That's what what happened. Before you ran for the cursus honorum, the, you know, before you ran for political office, you had to serve in the military. Something that many states today have, you have to serve in the military for a few years before you can really become a citizen. Um, and the United States does not, for the record, have that. You do not have to serve in the military in the United States in order to run for any kind of political office. And in fact, the last president that we had uh, who served in the military, and I'm not counting George, a., uh, George W. Bush because it was National Guard in Texas. You know, He showed up some weekends. Uh, you know, we had George H.W. Bush, uh, who was president. He fought in World War II. You know, plane shot down, dumped over the Pacific Ocean, swam to a carrier, and then, you know, climbed up and got himself out of the water. Um, but after that, uh, Clinton, William Clinton, Bill Clinton, as we call him, never served in the military. Uh, George Bush never served in the military. Uh, Barack Obama never served in the military. Donald Trump never served in the military, and uh, Joe Biden never served in the military. So we, we've been we, we've been thirty plus years since we've had anyone. But that's not really the point I'm getting at here with the with with Rome. 
the main problem with Rome <clears throat> was that Rome had elections. You could run for political office, and you know it was the, the elections were fairly free, and they were legitimate. You came to Rome, you voted. Uh, people became consuls on the basis of that. People got elected as tribunes. People got elected in all different positions. Okay, adels. The issue started happening when, after a while, with the you know as as the Roman government started advancing, the Senate, and the Senate right here means the aristocracy, the oligarchs. The Senate viewed serving in the military, which by the way was restricted. It was restricted. You had to have property. You had to be able to supply yourself. And the Romans had a military, which was it, it, the, the, the old military, was based off of a bunch of different things. First of all, you had the hastati, which meant armed with a spear. So you had your young men, who were the hastati, they were the first line. And then you had the prencapes, which were the second line. They were the more well-trained individuals. And then you had the triarii. And the Triari were basically the most trained. They were the ones, as an old Roman saying, an old Latin saying, it has come to the Triaria, which basically means, holy crap, we're in trouble. We need the Triari. And the Triarii were the most well-trained, disciplined, battle-hardened of soldiers. But basically what happened was the Hastati would go out there and they would originally break the enemy down a little bit. And after a little bit of battle, they would retreat. And the Principes would come out there then at that point. And they would pretty much just push and finish the job off. In, in many Roman battles, the Principes were the ones that would finish the job. The Triarii would never really be called. The Hastati would weaken and the Principes would finish them. The Triarii might be used if they were. And by the way, all units, when the Hastati were done fighting they would retreat behind the Principes and reform. So you might have a situation where, you know, there was like, oh, listen, the Principes are running into trouble. Get the Hastati out there again to do this or that. And then, of course, you had your auxiliary forces. The Romans used auxiliaries from different tribes. And, of course, the Equites, the, the, the horsemen, the cavalry, okay, uh, they were out there. Uh, the cavalry were never a major, major force in Roman history. In fact, if anything, the cavalry, you know, really hurt Rome more than it helped it. I mean, we talk about Adrianople and whatnot at another point. But anyway, so uh, th this was Rome. But here's where I'm going with this. After a while, the average Roman citizen soldier started asking, wait a minute, why am I still fighting here? What am I getting? And the Senate refused to give anything. The Senate was dead set against giving any kind of real reward to the Roman soldier. That left the door open for individual commanders to start giving their men rewards. Now this started, this started with two men. And these two men were responsible more than anyone else for what we'd call the downfall of the Roman Republic. So there's Gaius Marius and Cornelius Sulla. Gaius Marius was consul five times. I believe it's five times. 
And Marius was, was a liberal. Marius's thing was, he basically went out there and said, listen, I'll take anyone who's a free Roman. You don't have to own property. And you're going to be in the military and I'm going to pay you. You could turn it into a career. For many Romans, this was, this was gorgeous. I mean, let's be realistic here. You weren't fighting wars nonstop. And to be able to get a solid paycheck, I mean, today in 2021, if you offered someone, if you said, listen, I'll give you a job and you're going to make 40000 a year. That's it. No more. But you're going to make a solid 40000 a year and a constant paycheck. Many people would take that. They'd be like, my God, that's so much better than having to worry about, you know, what I'm going to make next week, what I'm going to do this and that. Not everyone would, of course. So Marius's big thing was he opened the legions to all citizens and he basically changed the entire structure of the military. So the military went from having these three divisions to basically being like, all right, listen, you're a soldier, you're a legionnaire. All legionnaires are going to be armed the same. They're all going to be equipped the same. They're going to be trained the same. And they're all going to go out there in their cohorts and fight the same. So there was, by the way, just for the record, there were two main things. In the beginning, the Romans fought in what we call maniples. And maniples were small units. And they were small units, it was about 120 or so. They were very mobile. And these units were very, very successful when the Romans were fighting against armies which utilized the phalanx, the spear wall. Uh, go and look up phalanx if you need to. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. But the bottom line is, is the, the, the Greek method, when they're fighting the Greeks to the east, the Carthaginians even used the phalanx in, in certain units. But the bottom line is that when you, when you had smaller units, you, they were much more mobile. Okay, Now, once the Romans moved into Gaul and Germania, or Germany, they were fighting against a much different enemy. They didn't use a spear wall tactic. They used a massive charge of individuals. And the problem with the maniple at that point was it just wasn't deep enough. It wasn't strong enough to handle the the charge. And so what you'd have is you'd have the Gauls would be charging into this and they would break through the maniple and then all of a sudden the entire line starts falling apart. So the Romans moved to a cohort. This is about 480 soldiers. Much, much, much deeper. Much thicker. And it was able to handle these units much better. Still mobile, okay, but able to handle these charges. So anyway, uh, guys, Marius comes out there and says, "All right, listen. Anyone can be part of the 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 uh, legion," and he recruits massive amounts of soldiers, trains them well, wins a bunch of battles overseas. Now you weren't supposed to be consul more than twice. He wins it five times because it's funny what happens when you move your soldiers into and around the capital. Um, you know, people are like, oh, you want to be consul again? Well, we're really not supposed to, but hey, you know, those swords and uh, 
you know, shields make a very compelling interest here. So he won. And the problem was that he aggravated a conservative named Cornelius Sulla. Sulla was fighting in the East at the time, came back, killed a bunch of Marius's followers, put his guys in charge. And then Marius came back later on, um, suffering from you know, dementia points, uh, killed all of Sulla's people. Sulla came back and ended up killing off thousands of Marius's allies. In fact, there was one individual who did not get killed, even though he was a relative of Marius, and spoke out on behalf of Marius, but Sulla actually respected him. You know, this was back in the day when you would respect someone for this kind of stuff. And that was Julius Caesar, the, the Caesar we know of, Gaius Julius Caesar. Now, <clears throat> this was the first problem, because it showed that individual commanders could get the loyalty of soldiers, and in ancient Rome, soldiers were the be-all and end-all of, if, if you had control of the military, you had control of the Roman state. Now, later, things change, but eventually what happens is, you end up having this fight in, uh, against the Carthaginians, the Punic Wars, and eventually, you end up getting a couple of guys who are looking at the state and saying, I think I can do a better job. So it comes down to three main figures. It comes down to our, our Caesar, our Caesar. It comes down to uh, Marcus Licinius Crassus, who's the wealthiest man in Rome. Okay, And then it comes to Pompey. Pompey the Great, as, as he was so called. And these guys basically make a, uh, an agreement to join forces because they're like, look, we've got the money, the military might, and Caesar was, you know, just, a, I mean, people loved him. So he was running around, and he, he was, by the way, a brilliant military commander, brilliant, beyond question. Uh, probably the best of his time. So what happened is, and I mean, certainly of the three of them, Caesar was the best. There's no question at all. If you have an argument about this, please do send your argument to me. But uh, Crassus was mediocre at best, poor on a general basis. Pompey was a, a good enough military commander, but Caesar was Caesar was brilliant. Caesar showed dash and courage. Caesar knew how to outflank people, how to deal with them. If, you had, if he had more food, if he had less food. If he had more soldiers, if he had less soldiers. Caesar was the man, okay? But anyway, Caesar and Pompey and, and Crassus form an alliance, and all of a sudden now, who's consul? Oh, whoever these guys want to be consul. That's a problem because now the democracy that has been, you know, safeguarding the republic becomes a problem. After all, Crassus decides to invade Parthia, which is modern-day Iran. Uh, the Iranians kill him. And then it becomes a case of 
Crassus, I'm sorry, of, of Pompey and Caesar. And a lot of people, there were two different sides, the populares and the optimates. And the two sides were the people that wanted major change and the people who wanted things to stay the same. And the bottom line is, and if you're interested in more of this, uh, let me know. I can suggest some great books. <clears throat> the bottom line is that Caesar went off to Gaul. He conquered Gaul, modern-day France. And then a bunch of the conservatives came up to Pompey and said, Caesar is a threat to the Republic. We need you to take over to basically become a dictator. Now, this happened in Rome before. This was not the first time, and it was a Roman tradition. The dictator was called upon to take charge until the threat was passed. This was, the difference was this was the first time that the dictator was fighting against a fellow Roman. Usually it was, oh my God, we're being invaded by the Gauls or the Carthaginians. I need you to, you know, we need to get someone to take over for a little while. And, uh, you know, you're the dictator. You get all the power. And in this case right here, okay, uh, it fell to, it fell to Pompey. And Caesar and Pompey had had an alliance. And then what Pompey did was he basically said, I will protect Caesar if he comes to Rome minus any of his soldiers. This was something which was a an impossibility for Caesar. Coming to Rome, he could have thrown himself at the mercy of Pompey, but at that point, if Pompey had ordered him arrested and then executed, there's nothing Caesar could have done. He would have been arrested and executed. And there were many, many Romans who wanted that to happen. So Caesar basically came to the point where he was like, no, I'll, I'm willing to go to another place in the empire. I'm willing to go to Illyria, which is modern-day Yugoslavia, with one legion, which would have been, you know, uh, 5,000 men, 6,000 men. And that would have, you know, had, the, had Pompey been like, okay, great, that would have been it. But there were many Romans that were like, no, we have to punish him. And so eventually they prevailed, Caesar was refused, and Pompey was given the Senatus Ultimus Constum, the, the uh, you know, making sure that nothing should happen to the Republic. So Pompey recruits troops. Caesar, of course, crosses the Rubicon River with his soldiers. The first time ever, a Roman general brings his soldiers, who were extremely loyal to him, into another territory. Now, at that point, he is now a rebel. Pompey flees with a bunch of soldiers and, and other senators to the east, where he rallies together a massive army. Caesar comes in, rallies an army. Why am I bringing all of this up besides giving you an excellent education about ancient Rome? Caesar, by the way, wins the Civil War and then is assassinated on the Ides of March and Brutus and company kill him. I bring this up because with the United States right now, we're reaching a point where we are in a similar situation to ancient Rome. Here's the main problem. 
The main problem is that we've already had one attempt to overthrow the government. And that was on January 6th. There was an attempt by a bunch of people who supported the former president to overthrow the government, to stop the government from doing its job. And possibly, I I believe this truthfully, I do. Had they managed to catch a couple of these people, I do feel that they probably would have executed them. I really feel this way. And again, now you can be like, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're making this up. Because obviously, you know, two months later, you can't really say anything about it. I do feel that based upon all we know now, had many of these people been able to catch Mike Pence, for example, who was the vice president at the time, I think they would have hanged him. I think that they would have hanged if they had been able to catch uh, the incoming vice president, Kamala Harris. I think they would have hanged her. I think that they would have done this stuff because they believed they were acting to save the republic. And you have to be very, very, very careful when you're dealing with anyone that believes that they're acting to save something. Uh, you know, we, we, we see this all the time. Criminals believe that they're saving the country from foreigners, and that's why they had to kill a dozen of them. Uh, people, you know, recently in Georgia, we had this individual who murdered uh, eight people, six of whom were Asian women, and believed he was doing it in order to save people from because he had a sex addiction. Addiction. He believed he was he was stopping these people from, you know, corrupting other people. Never mind that there is absolutely no evidence that any of these people were involved in the actions which he was accusing them of. But he was convinced that they were, and therefore, he was like, well, I have to kill them in order to save people. This is what religion does to some people. But the United States right now, here's the major problem. What's happening to the individuals who stormed Congress and tried to overthrow the government. And my suggestion is not enough. In olden days, and I've been reading, believe me, I've been reading Kikoro's first cut, the, the, his speeches on the Catalinarian conspiracy. Um, Marcus Tullius Kikoro, after whom I named my one son, my firstborn. Kikoro was consul at the time. And his first speech was absolutely... Uh, it was it was it was absolutely nuts. He went after Catiline. Catiline was basically going to overthrow the government and kill a bunch of the high-ranking people because he couldn't get elected legitimately. So he was like, "Well, you know, what? I'll kill a bunch of people and I'll become, you know, consul." And Catiline goes after him. I, I'm sorry, Kikoro goes after Catiline and and rips into him. None of that's going on today. These people who stormed the, the halls of Congress, some of them are being arrested, but nobody's really, nothing's going to happen. Maybe some jail time. 
Kikoro immediately called for the death penalty. I'm not saying the death penalty is needed for this, but it's the same kind of way where, you know, I said the other day, um, you know, and I'm not advocating violence here, but I said, you know, you've got these people now, you have anti-Asian uh, hate crimes are on the rise. Well, you know what? I'll tell you, the first time someone comes and and assaults someone who's Asian, what if everyone around them just started wailing on the person? What if everyone around them grabbed the person, or even not wailing on them, but grabbed the person, pinned them down, called the police and said, you know what, and then waited and had the person arrested? That's not happening. These people are getting away with things, okay? And that was the case in ancient Rome. Caesar recognized that the Senate was not going to do anything. And he realized that, and he knew that, you know what, if I do my thing, I'm going to get away with it. Now, I'm not saying that in a negative sense against Caesar. I happen to think that Caesar was probably, as the empire, uh, as the Republic was collapsing, which it was because at the end of the day, the rich in Rome just refused to care for the poor. And the poor then led, were led to support other people like Caesar who promised them that he would make things better. That's the way it went, okay? And, and again, I'm not advocating violence. What I'm saying is that much like in ancient Rome in the United States, you know, you've had people, one of the main reasons that Trump got elected in 2016 was the promise of, what was it, drain the swamp. He's going to get rid of the way that politics is done in general. A lot of people are fine with that. A lot of people don't like it. I mean, heck, you know, it's not just Republicans or conservatives. Let's not make that mistake. There are many Democrats, there are many liberals that don't like the way that politics are being done in the United States right now. They would like to have a fresh start. Trump promised them that. I mean, he failed miserably to deliver it. But the bottom line was that he promised it to them. And that's why he got a phenomenal amount of votes. And he ended up winning the election. Well, that and Russian help, but that's besides the point. The issue I'm bringing up is that when we look at ancient Rome and we look at the United States, there are many similarities here. And we have to be very careful. The belief that democracy is an effective form of government it kind of collapsed in ancient Rome. It's collapsing in the United States. Okay? We're having a lot of issues with people. You know, in many states, they're restricting the right to vote. They're gerrymandering. Um, you know, and, and it's basically the case of individuals in Congress are saying, look, the more people that vote, the less we're going to win. That's a problem. If the more people that vote, the less you're going to win, obviously you're not doing a good job with your policies, you know, uh, or you're going to basically make the argument that the country is full of people who are just, you know, you know, silly, crazy people. Either way, there's a problem. Um, and, and when we talk about these things with ancient Rome, 
I don't know that we can really, in the United States, I don't know, you know, that this, that this, I don't think it will be a quick thing. I don't think there'll be a civil war. The problem is that you're going to have continual fights over who gets to say what. Already, we've got major problems. You've got a presidency that is becoming more and more what we call the imperial presidency. Much like in Rome, it went from two consuls to an emperor. Okay? Um, you know, you've got a Senate which has shown it is incapable of really acting, for the most part, in the interests of the individual person. Um, you know, you, it's, it's a real to-do about things. And Trump, for, for all of his flaws, he had the appeal. I'm different. I'm not like them. I'm going to change things. Now, Caesar, Pompey, Crassus, they were all of the, you know, the, the establishment. Even though Caesar was the populares, as we called them, he was still an establishment guy. I mean, there was no question. But the issue is that when people start looking at politicians, and all of them were politicians, they start asking, like, well, what is he going to do for me? And in this case, Caesar showed that he would, he would help the poor. All of these guys showed that they were interested in changing the status quo and in changing the way that people were elected. And that's what we have now. I was reading the other day in another 30 years or so that um, something like, maybe not 30 years, I'm thinking of 30%. But the bottom line is, in, in another several years, um, 70% of the U.S. Senate is going to be run by 30% of the population. Now, this is absolutely ridiculous. <clears throat> you can't have 30% of the population running 70%. That's not a democracy. That's not a republic. Okay, that's, you know, I mean, that's fantastic if you're one of the 30%, I guess. But, you know, it's not, you're not representing the will of the people. And representing the will of the people is the very essence of democratic republicanism. So, I guess what what I'm, I'm doing today, you got your lesson on Roman history, and I would love to give more of it. Um, you know, with, with the collapse of the republic. But you also got a sense that in the United States, you know, the other thing is that, and I'll leave you with this, in the United States, there's this sense that we really believe that we are better than everyone and that nothing can happen to our country. That's a problem. We believe we will never be, you know, it's like, oh, things change. Yeah, but we're never going to stop being a democratic republic. That's the first step towards not becoming a democratic republic. When you start thinking, well, we, we you know, this won't happen. Mm, that's when it happens. It's like the old saying, the minute, uh, and I always tell my students at school, I say, you know, there are a couple of phrases you need to be wary of. 
The first one of them, of course, is what could possibly go wrong? The minute someone says, what could possibly go wrong? The answer is usually everything, and it does. Or you find out that someone says, don't worry, no one will ever find out about this. The minute someone says, don't worry, no one will ever find out, that's a guarantee everyone will find out, okay? So you need to be wary of these things. And in the United States, we need to be wary about what's going on with our politicians. And we need to act in a way that does not replicate those dying days of the Roman Republic. Nobody saw it coming. Nobody, I mean, you know, Cicero, after Caesar was killed, Cicero and company were like, okay, well, Caesar's dead now. Everyone, we're going to go back to the old way, the way it used to be. But it wasn't possible anymore. And as much as I love Cicero, and I think he's a phenomenal character, his problem was he, he really believed that no matter what, they could always just go back to the way it was. They couldn't. Things had changed. Things had changed irreparably. It, it, was, it was no longer possible to go back because the people, Marius, Sulla, Caesar, Pompey, Crassus, Catiline, they had changed the Republic to a point where it could no longer go back. We have to make sure in the United States that we don't ever get to that point where we have individuals changing the government to the point it can't go back. We have to watch out for the imperial presidency, no matter who's in charge. We have to watch out that the Supreme Court does not become a party which you know dictates policy rather than simply saying it's okay or not. The Senate, the House of Representatives, I mean, these two different hollowed grounds, you know, there's a lot that could go wrong. So the end of the day, we're dealing with the fact that we need to keep an eye on our government. Rome gives us a very solid example even though we're not involved in, you know, literally the types of wars that they were, though we are involved in some wars, we have to be careful. We have to be careful. In any case, I hope all of you are having a wonderful uh, week. I will be putting some more stuff out in the near future. And I wish all of you a very happy, healthy, and wonderful week to come. And uh, that's from all of us here. We will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.